Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Alcoholism and addiction are unfortunately common in our society. But as legal professionals, many of us imagine ourselves too smart or too successful to be affected. Today we'll be talking about addiction in a very personal way and exploring how it affects overachievers, lawyers who from the outside appear to be very much in control. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Lisa Smith, the author of A Girl Walks Out of a Bar, a memoir about addiction in the legal profession. Lisa, welcome to Talks on Law. Great to be with you. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure. In my introduction, I mentioned that addiction also affects professionals, but it's not also. It seems professionals are, are yeah, right in there with everyone else. Absolutely. You know, addiction, for one, does not discriminate. Um, it is all around us. And, um, you know, people talk about high-functioning addicts or high-functioning alcoholics. Well, you're only high-functioning until the day you're not. Till the day you get, you know, you miss a meeting or a court filing or something like that because of your drinking, you, um, you know, you have a DUI, something like that, and all of a sudden, what was functional um, addiction or alcoholism the day before is a real problem. And maybe we've talked to to some other experts on the topic, and you know, high functioning may be relative. So <laughs> yes. you're moving, uh, you're hitting a, a moving target. That's diminishing. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, at a certain point after about five and a half years of practicing, um, I had the opportunity to jump over to the administrative side of the law firm when I was when I was drinking. And it was about halfway through what was a 10-year slide for me. And at that point, I really liked the idea. And I took the opportunity to jump to the administrative side and stop practicing, actually, at the same firm. Because, you know, as I got more senior, it got more and more incompatible with my need So you to weren't drink. as much up for the challenge. Right. That's right. So how does it affect lawyers? I've, I've seen some statistics that you know, it's as high as 20% of mm-hmm. uh, practicing attorneys have a drinking problem. Yeah. There was a study done in 2016 by the American Bar Association together with Hazel and Betty Ford. And it was the biggest, most exhaustive study in a, in a long time in a I think it's ever been done, but certainly in the last 15 years. And it looked at the prevalence of both substance abuse and mental health disorders among practicing attorneys in the U.S. And it was over 13,000 people responded, and it was only practicing lawyers. So employed lawyers, private practice, in-house, academia, government And uh, the overall finding was that 21% registered as having an alcohol use disorder. And that is more than double the general rate of alcoholism in the general public, which is thought to be around 9%. Um, So what was also really frightening in looking at the numbers was that the highest incidence uh, of problem drinking um, among lawyers was in those in practice between one and 10 years. So the newer, the younger the new lawyers. new lawyers, like significantly higher, and then it decreased. I'm imagining, you know, the end of Boston Legal where William Shatner is sitting and drinking his scotch and thinking, okay, that's the, 
that's the problem generation. Those are the guys that yeah, yeah, finish, yeah, finish yeah. every day with us with a high Right, note. right. No, that's what, and you think of the old days of the three martini lunch yeah. and all of that. But no, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the kinds of pressures that people are coming out of law school with this year or in, in you know, these times. There's a ton of debt. It's a tough legal market. It is a tough field to practice in. You know, I think about when I was in law school, for instance, it was in college, I knew people who majored in biology and history and anthropology. And, you know, we didn't compete. We were all friends. And then when you get to law school, you get into your first year and it's like, wow, we're all up against each other. <laughs> you know, your gain Hopefully is my schools loss. do a, a better job of of not instilling that type of dynamic. Yeah. But it, yeah. it is there when, when you know only yeah. one person's getting that law review position right. or, or that right. special uh, clerkship. Yeah. One thing that you also have have talked have written about and, and discussed is how addiction or alcohol use is self-medication mm-hmm. or treatment of uh, anxiety yeah. or, or mental health issues. Yeah. And now it, it seems as a society that we're uh, at a particularly anxious level. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who have anxiety. And you discuss treating how mm-hmm. people sometimes self-medicate with alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was my experience, actually, um, which was that uh, I was, when I finally went into a detox after this 10-year slide, that the last 18 months of which, you know, were um, around-the-clock using of both alcohol and cocaine, I was admitted into detox and figured they'll, they'll fix me. And basically, after... <laughs> Five days in the in the hospital, I'd been working with a psychiatrist, and he said, "Listen, I think um, you know you are a very smart woman with a very serious problem." And um, it's a hard you, thing to hear. Yeah, and you pro- what his feeling was was that you know you have had you have major depressive disorder. You've likely had it all your life, which is you know I, I talk in the book about having you know, kind of upset, really starting with food as the first substance I abused and then going up the line. But what it always served for me was, um, you know, it was a very quick way to make that anxiety, what makes anxiety go away faster than, you know, a quick drink. And, you know, when you are in the crazy pace of a law practice yeah. and, you know, you're, it, it, you're getting home late at night, you want to get to sleep because you need to get up early the next morning, and it's, you know, it's a very handy way to take away... Take the that, edge off. To take the edge off, and, um, yeah, to, to kind of quiet the anxiety. So I think that overlay of substance abuse and mental health issues like anxiety and depression is, is significant. Why don't we transition into talking about you and mm-hmm. your story? I'm fascinated by the ability to share and the ability to be so honest. <laughs> At what point did you think, wow, I'm bold enough to, to not only make this recovery, but explain it and share it with others? <laughs> well, it was when I, when I finally got sober after you know, those awful 10 years of drinking every day um, and then and st- steadily more, um, 
I had somehow managed to keep it under wraps. So the day that I, it was a day that I thought actually I had overdosed or I was having a heart attack. I was on my way to work in the morning and I had to drink and use in order to get out the door to go to work at that point. Like if you saw me when I woke up in the morning before I drank or, or used cocaine, you'd look at that me and say, that person's really sick. She's sweating, she's green, she doesn't look right. When I, in order to get to sort of level, um, I needed to drink and then to stop the shakes, to stop the sweats. And then because that would make me a little bit woozy, I would need to sort of pep back up with cocaine. So you'd balance it's it. It's a balancing act, yeah. And a miserable, miserable balancing act. Um, and so, you know, I was carrying this secret and this shame and lying or certainly just not being truthful with, you know, I had really close friends and family. And so when I, when I thought that one Monday morning on my way to work, oh my God, I think I've killed myself because I felt like a heart attack was coming on. And I finally said, I need to get help. I had to call them because I knew how bad I was that I would have to go to an inpatient medicated detox. Where did you get the strength yeah. to decide to write a book about this and, and share it with... You're not yeah. only your, your, yeah. your close friends but, and family, but with everyone. When I got out of detox and my family and friends had no idea what was going on or what happened, they had a million questions. Why did this happen? Why didn't you tell us? We would have helped you. And uh, I was processing it myself. I was up early in the mornings and I started just writing down then what had happened in the hospital and what had happened. And then I found it cathartic and I kept writing. And it was, I would share it with my family and friends. And they were finding it really helpful to... Um, to kind of, to understand what was yeah. in my head. And then I thought about all those nights that I was by myself, you know, drinking, using drugs, just isolated, miserable. And I knew that there was someone else out there doing the exact same thing tonight. Hmm. And um, once I started putting this together, I for them, I, I thought, you know, this Maybe could really help somebody. Yeah, really, it's just the idea of trying to, trying to help somebody. It was... I read every book I could find, every memoir on uh, addiction when I got sober, and I didn't see my story of a lawyer who didn't lose it all or a business person who didn't lose it all, who had still, you know, people would say I had a high bottom because I still had my job and my friends and my apartment a and high all bottom. those so things. There's often this concept of rock bottom. Right. And, you know, your your case is an example where you don't have to go to, right. to jail to, to hit rock bottom. Right. You can right. you can turn it around. I mean yeah. we'll talk about it a bit later. You yeah. were you were in a low place. But. Yeah. That's what made me want to do it. And I think the reason I, I don't mind speaking up and being so loud about it is because every time I talk about it still, 14 years later, it's still a relief. It's still a relief <laughs> from that awful secret, um, you know, that I had been carrying for so long. For me, you know, what it turned out um, is that when, the, when I first started drinking on a daily basis or a nightly basis, I should say, it was um, when I was a first-year associate at a law firm. Because of the stress of the job? Yeah, I mean, I think it was the first time I was living in Manhattan, and when I, I was living alone, and I was really, I felt very um, uncertain at work. I felt very stressed. I felt, you know, kind of like I was a fraud waiting to be discovered. <laughs> and I would, you know, frequently go out and have drinks with my friends, um, but then there were nights that I started coming home and just having, you know, wine, a couple glasses of wine by myself. Um, and in my head, it was, well, 
you know, my parents had cocktail hour every night. This is no different than that. And then, you know, the two glasses a night becomes a struggle to keep it to three becomes the bottle. Then there's the second, you know, it is a very, I went from it saying. Progresses. Yeah. And, yeah. and the effects of alcohol do diminish. So if you want that nice, pleasant feeling, right, yeah. you might have to up the quantity yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But I said I would never, you know, I, I wouldn't drink at lunch until I drank at lunch. And, you know, you keep part of the disease is that you keep crossing lines you swore you wouldn't cross, that you promised yourself you keep wouldn't cross. Keep moving the goalpost. Yeah, the goalpost move. So when did you start adding cocaine into the mix? Most of the conversation so far has been about alcohol, mm-hmm. but, you know, part yeah. of your story is, is about cross addiction. Yes. You know, cocaine is something that had sort of been around from time to time in my life. I tried it, first tried it at a very young age, um, when I, I was probably about 15. And then, you know, if it was around, it was great. If it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't something I really cared about as in the same way. I mean, I thought I loved it, but alcohol was really my true love. Um, but then it started getting to the point where I was drinking so much that I was having trouble you know, getting through the day, getting so it was a through. performance enhancement So basically, from the when I started truly, really using, which was in those last eighteen months of um, of using before I checked into detox, it was strictly about straightening me out. So like, it was there. You know, it was it was so I wouldn't show up to work slurring, but um, but that's what it was for. It wasn't it wasn't anything fun for sure. How was your performance at work? Well, it was good. <laughs> it was good. I had, uh, I was doing well. Um, you know, I had, so again I, in the introduction, I talk about you know addiction with overachievers. This is someone who's yeah. severely addicted, who's drinking yeah. most of the day, mm-hmm. and is still managing to perform yeah. at maybe not your best possible, right? right. But, but at a level that where you can go yeah. undetected. Yeah. Well, what had happened was after you know, as I mentioned, after five and a half years of practicing when I had the opportunity to jump over, a big part of it was because I was thinking this will be a lot easier going on to working with business development and working on that than, than working on deals, which I had been doing before that. You can that. get more sleep. Maybe you can focus well, on Well, I thought so. It just ended up I started drinking earlier. But, um, but it was uh, something that was way more manageable. It was not a difficult lift for me in terms of you know brain power and stamina. And I stayed in that, and uh, that's where I was. I was at a job, and I was doing well, but I worked hard. Like, I felt like I was working very hard at the time. And then after about 10 months of sobriety, I took a job that was next level that I wouldn't have even been able to get into the interview, you know, for if I, w- if I weren't sober. And maybe you wouldn't have wanted I wouldn't have even tried for it. I never would have tried for it. And that's something that um, worries me when we talk about the numbers being highest in the first 10 years. Um, Part of what I worry happens is that a lot of young lawyers drop out of the profession. So, you know, don't make it it to the next 10 years. Right. So for me, you know, I self-selected out of practicing. I wouldn't have been surveyed in that. As you mentioned, you know, you're high-functioning until you're not. Yeah. So maybe... There's also that tipping point where yes. people are pushing themselves right, out. Right, and maybe everybody doesn't have a soft landing into a, a nice business development Certainly job don't. Firm, Certainly don't. Like I did. Yeah. So, you know, if you're trying to continue to go up the chain in a firm or up the corporate ladder or, you know, continue whatever office you're in, um, it becomes harder and harder. As professionals, 
we're taught even to mm -hmm. put up a strong front, yep. to, oh, yeah. to look like you know what you're yeah. doing, yeah. to, you know, it, and sometimes in confrontational situations, you yeah. might be up against another counsel and your role is to represent strength. Some of that same acting mm -hmm. is being employed, uh, you were employing to mm -hmm. hide your addiction. Oh, it's miserable and it is acting. It is hard. It, you know, people talk about someone who's suffering with substance abuse as getting something over on their employer. Nobody is thinking about getting something over on anyone. All you're thinking about is how do I get through this situation that I'm in right now so I can get out and get to where I need to be to drink, to buy drugs, to take drugs, to just not be here. What do I need to do to get through? Part of the experience, and maybe something that affects lawyers in particular, is that because we're so good at, at, at acting, or mm -hmm. we're so good at, at pretending everything is, yeah. is okay, that yeah. that can be used to, to hide addiction. It can, it, it can, and it's, it's interesting because the numbers are, um, are, are compelling in that way, right? That, you know, we are perfectionists, we don't want to be seen with any cracks, and so we put on this very elaborate facade. It's not the kind of situation where you can keep up that act, like what I was doing. It is only a matter of time. I was circling the drain. So anybody who's sort of, um, you know, thinking like, I got this, I'm just going to be a functional alcoholic. Well, that, that's what I thought also. Some of the telltale signs, were you hiding alcohol and drugs in your office? I carried drugs. I usually didn't have alcohol in my office, but um, I didn't really need to. There was enough alcohol all over New York City. So you'd, you'd make an excuse or you'd go to lunch and have I would go, have yeah, on a typical, have sake. <laughs> on a typical day, I would, you know, get in late and do what I was doing. And I worked, you know, like I said, I was in a position where um, I had a boss who was in Denver and I was working directly with the partners in New York and they were great. And it, I was there, I was getting my work done. And if I had meetings, I had to calibrate my using around those meetings and I'd be counting the minutes until I could get out to uncalibrate. The signs to me, I think, when you, when you think about somebody who, you, they seem perfectly normal, but you know, maybe there's something wrong, is uh, when you see any kind of change. Change is a big thing. I used to be a morning person until I began drinking in the morning, you know, or began getting So you're a morning person night. even in law school? You know, that changed when I was waking up with horrible hangovers and could barely get myself out the door in the morning. I would, you know, always want to come out and visit with my family on a Sunday or stay and see them. But more and more, I would just be, by the time I was going to go on a Sunday, I would be wrecked from what I'd been up to for the last two days and just, oh, I got to work and, and make an excuse. You know, not showing up is something. There was a, definitely, there was a whole period where I wasn't, I didn't wear any makeup when I used to always make, you know, put on makeup. Just little changes in the way somebody behaves or takes care of themselves or doesn't. Somebody who used to dress really well suddenly is kind of a mess. You describe an anecdote where you missed the birth of your yeah. nephew or niece? My niece, your niece, yeah. And you were battling over which excuse to make. Was it work or was it right. the fact that, or the idea of being sick? Right. Right, and that is a lot of energy dealing with that. You know, being being in that position where you have to feed an addiction is uh, an absolutely miserable way to live, and it's way harder to live trying to constantly keep calibrated with alcohol and drugs than it is to be sober, which was amazing to me. 
So that's an interesting way to put it. So instead of your body kind of maintaining a balance, you're the chemist who always has to add always. a little bit of, of, of alcohol or a little bit of cocaine to keep. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's a constant this, those, act. And so there was a recent, I would say it was in 2017, uh, article in the New York Times called The Lawyer, The Addict, which was a really interesting piece about... Um, it's written by the former wife of a partner in a law firm who died from an overdose. And when they found, you know, what he had uh, in the home, there were all kinds of, you know, kind of charts and calibrations and, you know, very... So this was a scientist who yeah, was... Very meticulous. I need a little bit of yeah. this. Or... The good news, though, is that, you know, given that kind of intense focus and drive and perfectionism, when lawyers do get sober, they, in, you know, there aren't a ton of studies on the rate of recovery, but um, they recover, they have a higher instance of recovery. The thing about everything that you write about and, and you're describing, it's just so universal. It's something yeah. that so many of us can identify with. I can leave work sometimes and I'm so stressed. Yeah. And I'll meet my friends and I'll say, give me 30 minutes and a cocktail yeah. before you expect me to act normal. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's that idea of I need a drink. Um, I think that is, uh, that's, it's common across the board and I think that, and I think it's in other industries as well. In finance, I think media, there are a whole host but for some reason, you know, in focusing on lawyers, you really see that there are high levels of uh, stress and anxiety that the study showed as well. So that was, you know, more than twice the general population as well. We talked about your addiction and how it was progressing or becoming harder and harder to maintain a semblance of a normal life. There were some cracks that started to show. Oh, yeah. Who and how were the your friends or mm -hmm. colleagues, I think in your case it was friends, w were able to see past your, your facade? Well, what happened with my friends and my family was I just started shutting them out more and more. I would be around them less than, than I normally would. I uh, met someone in my building, my friend Mark in the book, who lived in the building and was spending a lot of time in my apartment. At, Mark is uh, one of the heroes of the book, I think. <laughs> he is. He is, and we're still very good friends. He uh, was around enough and is also kind of a, a, the kind of person who's going to snoop around a little bit. <laughs> you know, I want, sometimes I wonder if I didn't want to get discovered and called out at that point, you know, because I was getting sloppy. I was not, you know, it's, it was the last six months before I checked in. And, you know, I was really, like I said, circling the drain. And I gave him keys to my apartment. So, you know, because he had said it'd be great if I could work up here because it's nicer than my apartment. And do you I think said, he okay. was doing it just for work or do you think he was working? I do think it? he was doing it just for work, but I think he took full advantage. And <laughs> if I had been an earlier version of myself, I would have said, no, you can't. I don't know what compelled me to say, yeah, okay, that's a good idea, in, given what was going on in my life. He, and Mark wasn't, uh, wasn't an alcoholic. No, not at all. Not at all. No, in, you know, and I, I mentioned it in the book that one Sunday I was drinking wine, watching football, and I had a little, just a small mirror with cocaine on it on, on the table. Just a small uh, mirror? Just a small mirror. And then <laughs> I've razor, never heard that. Not a blade. small amount Not of cocaine. The, the small mirror. the wall, the small mirror. Um, and I was, you know, we were watching football, and I 
but thought he was cool. I thought it was perfectly normal. And he turned to me and he was like, you know, most people don't sit around drinking wine and doing blow on Sunday. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then- It didn't even strike as true. You, you thought, well, of course they did. I was outraged. I, was, I said, you know, you had no idea. You don't work the kind of job I work. I, you know, every justification in the buck and you don't know what you're talking about. But I knew. I knew normal people didn't do <laughs> didn't that. Didn't do cooking. This was one of the few people who had yes. kind of seen you yeah, yeah. in your element. Yeah, yeah. And at, at the end, you know, uh, two weeks before I checked in, uh, he called me out on something, and he said he had been talking to people, and I know that you know you're an alcoholic and you're cross addicted and you have to go to rehab or I need to get away from you. And I just looked at him and I was like, "Good, please go. Give me your keys." You know, there's the door. And you left. I took the keys, and I was perfectly fine with that. You don't want to watch me die? Go right ahead. Was he the first person who had confronted you about yes. your addiction? Yes. You know, there were a lot of times where people would, you know, sort of say something about having, you know, my mother in particular, you know, you drank too much last night. And then I would say, yeah, I did. And she'd say, but you're just blowing off steam from work, right? You know, everybody wants to. People make to, excuses for you. Sure, sure. Nobody wants to think there's something, you know, that nefarious going on or that, that um, unhappy. All right, let's have a quick break for the MCLE code to allow our California listeners to get credit for this interview. The code is 080199. That's 0801.19. And now back to the interview. So do you think you knew everything that he was saying or was something, was, did it take someone pointing it out to yeah, ring a bell? I knew what my mentality was at that point was, I know I'm an alcoholic and I'm gonna be an alcoholic. I'm not gonna stop drinking. I am going to get this cocaine thing under control. I'm gonna start drinking less. I'm gonna stop drinking in the morning. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna get it under control. I had full understanding that I was full-blown addicted, but until that day that I thought I was having a heart attack, I thought I was gonna be able to, to get it under control. And that's the thing with lawyers too. I got this, right? It's the, you're used to the work hard, play hard, right? You file a brief and you're out with the team celebrating until you know midnight, but you know you really have to be back at your desk at 9 a.m. like fresh and ready to and do another 12 hour day. you have a lot of achievements day. under your belt. Let's talk about when you asked for help. Mm-hmm. I can only describe it as nearing body failure. Yeah. You, you were, yeah. Shaking, you're worried you might actually have a stroke or a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that morning. It, it was a Monday morning. I had been um, working on a big proposal for work all weekend. So I had shut myself in, which was what I did towards the end. Not seeing friends, not seeing family. I got to work all weekend. I didn't, you know, my idea of work was then getting all set up to spend the weekend by myself with my, you know, drinks and my drugs, and that was it. And I did that and barely ate over the course of that weekend. And then that morning, the Monday morning, I was really sick, and I was throwing up blood at that point. Uh, that had been a relatively new thing, but it had been happening. Not, not a pleasant surprise for no. anyone. 
No. And, um, you know, I looked very much... Um, do you know what that was in, you know, in I retrospect? Just the, the um, what you do to your esophagus and wow. what, from all the throwing up and my stomach would, uh, my stomach was, you know, just constantly uh, barraged with all that, all that booze. So I went to, you know, I, I think what, what sort of triggered the anxiety attack was that I needed then cocaine to balance myself out to get to work after I drank. And I would just be, you know, like, it, it, it was not pretty, be sweats on the sheets and shaking like crazy. And it would, I, was, I would keep a glass on the nightstand next to me because when I woke up, I knew I wasn't going to be able to physically get out of the bed and get you to the bathroom immediately. immediately, immediately at that point. And what happened was when I, I finished the cocaine I had left that morning, and it, it went through my head, okay, I thought I had bought enough on Friday to get me through this next week. Now it's already gone. Now I got to call the dealer. Now I got to leave work early. And all the machinations that, you know, it takes to keep feeding this awful addiction. And... I got anxious, and I had just done a bunch of flow, and I was walking out to go. I was dressed. I was in my work clothes. I had my laptop, my New York Times, and I was going to the elevator, and I got overwhelmed, and I, I was like, this is it. I think, I, I think I've killed myself. And something in that moment said, I need help, I'm, I, and I couldn't push the down button for the elevator. And Which you, is scary, but in, in retrospect, that's such a powerful moment. It was. It was like I. I it was like that button was going to be on fire. Don't go there. And um, I went back in my apartment. I called Mark actually. Yeah. And then I went. The first call that I made because I knew how sick I was. I called my doctor, uh, who was. You know, he asked me about my insurance. He knew nothing. I didn't know anyone in recovery. I didn't know anyone who'd been to rehab or detox. And I explained to him what was going on. And he said, okay, yeah, you need to go to inpatient now. And I ended up, as you know, checking into pretty much the worst psych hospital on <laughs> detox floor in Manhattan. The first call was to your your friend. Yeah. Someone in the building who mm-hmm. probably knew the most yeah. about your, your problem. Then your doctor. But you didn't stop there. You, no. you you felt well a, next like sharing. was my law firm because I wanted to make sure I reached out to them. I knew I was going to go in for five days. And I oh, knew so it wasn't all had, honesty. The next call was uh, Oh yeah, the next call was, was protecting myself. <laughs> defensive. Um, defensive. But you know, with with Mark there, I knew and I knew when I called, I could have just called my doctor, but I called Mark because I knew with Mark though there was no way I was not I was going to back out. Like I had to, like he was not going to you know let me talk myself out of it or whatever I, I might do, and uh, he was just sitting there watching after I talked to the doctor and I said I got to tell the firm I'm going to be going away because they had said you'll stay you'll probably stay up to five days and I knew that the rules were you could be out sick for five days. But if you were going to be at a sixth day, you'd need to have a note explaining what was going on. And there was no way I was doing that. So I uh, emailed them early before when I knew people wouldn't be in yet. I emailed the people that I worked with and the people I was working on projects with. And I said, please don't worry, but I had a medical emergency over the weekend. I'm going to be out this week. I'm going to be in the hospital, so I'll be out of touch, but I'm fine. I will see you on Monday. That was the reason I was bound and determined to go back to work that next week. I did not, I was not willing to tell my law firm. I told, I would, my family and my friends, the way we were, there was no way I could just go off the grid for five days. You've reached the end of part one of this interview. 
Be sure to check out part two for the rest of the conversation. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.